Um, one thing that I want to draw your attention to in here is that in just two weeks on November 24th, we're doing child dedications as a church. Now, um, at Genesis, like most Christian churches, we don't do infant baptisms. We believe that baptism is a decision that you have to make. It's a, out of obedience, something you do out of obedience. Uh, but if you have little kids uh, that you want to raise in a godly household and you want the church to come around you and help you with that, uh, that's what we do with child dedications. We want to stand up with you, stand beside you as parents, um, as a church, and commit that, hey, we want to be there to help you raise your kids. We're going to encourage you in that. And so we'd love for you to be a part of that. If you have a child that's not been dedicated or if you've got a new baby in your family, um, November 24th. If you want more information on that, on the uh, next week, on the 17th, between our two services at 1045, there will be an informational session. We'd love to share with you uh, any information about that. Uh, and so you can, you can sign up for that on your connection card, uh, or you can go online to genesischurch.me, and there's uh, on the What's Happening tab, uh, there's a place that you can sign up for both of those things, both child dedications and the information session. Uh, second thing I want to tell you is that tomorrow's Veterans Day. And uh, we love our veterans. We want to say thank you to you. I wonder if there's anyone in the room, if you've served in one of our branches of the military, if you've uh, served, would you raise your hand right now? Anyone in this room? Uh, good. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. We sure appreciate, Mike, thank you. We appreciate our veterans uh, and the way you serve and the way you give so selflessly. Uh, thanks for that. We'll celebrate you by, tomorrow by um, some of us not going to work, but I'll be here. So um, most of you probably will be too. But thank you guys so much for the way that you serve, the way you fight, the way you give. Uh, we appreciate that. Uh, Cameron talked about our staff, and you guys now know everything you need to know about us, but I just wanted to thank you too, now, because we couldn't do what we do at Genesis without you. Your generous giving, uh, your ongoing stewardship uh, helps us to do ministry here, do everything we do here on Sunday morning and throughout the week. And so whether you give uh, in one of the envelopes on the back of the chairs, or you give a check every week, or if you give online... Uh, which we love our online givers, and you guys don't get nearly enough credit, but if you give online, uh, we thank you for that. Um, we're so glad for you, thankful to have you here. And so with that, I'm going to ask our host team to come forward, and they're going to take up the offering right now. I grew up on the west side of Indianapolis, um, just outside of Speedway. Uh, that's where I spent most of my life, actually all my life until I went to college. And um, so growing up, uh, my heroes were all based at 16th and Georgetown. And for most of, the, uh, most of my life, uh, Johnny Rutherford, most of my childhood life, Johnny Rutherford was my hero. Now, if you don't know, Johnny Rutherford was an Indy 500 driver, uh, won the race three times, 1974, 76, and 1980. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a big deal for me because, like, I was west of the Speedway, but if the wind was blowing right, if it was blowing out of the east, I could hear the cars uh, going around the track in my front yard. And if, if you grew up in Indianapolis at all, you know uh, that the Indy 500 used to be a much bigger deal even than it is today. I mean, every, I was just talking to somebody after the first service and who, who grew up in Kokomo, and he said, you know, everybody, all of my neighbors and all my family went to the race. And it's like, yeah, all, all ours did too. And uh, you either went to the race or what we would always do on Memorial Day weekend 
weekend is we would have a picnic, a cookout in our backyard, and we would listen to the race live on the radio, and it was a big, big deal. Not quite as big a deal now, but so all of my heroes, uh, especially Johnny Rutherford were at the Indy 500. I didn't like A.J. Foyt. I didn't really like Mario Andretti, so JR, Lone Star JR, uh, was my hero. And like I said, he won the race three times. One thing I loved about him was he had a helmet that had the Texas flag painted on it. And so right down the middle, it was uh, red, white, blue with a star in it. And so it was really cool uh, to see that. I'd never been to Texas. Um, I didn't have any tie to Texas, but I thought that was really cool that he appreciated his heritage. And then when I was 14, uh, JR set the one lap uh, record of all time at any track for Indy 500 uh, for Indy cars. Uh, he going 215 miles an hour around the Michigan Motor Speedway, and it is just so cool to me to think I can't even. I've never been 80, and he's driving 215, you know, around this track. And so uh, he was significant in my life, is what I'm trying to say. You know, Johnny Rutherford was a significant influence. He was my hero. He was who I wanted to be. I wonder, growing up, did you have any heroes? Like, who is that person that you looked up to? In fact, let's just take a minute, turn to the person next to you, and tell them who was your hero when you were a kid. Who was the person you wanted to be growing up? I love hearing the laughter. Some people, some of you have funny heroes, you know. Uh, some people will go, really? That was your hero? Oh, you're serious. I'm sorry. I... <laughs> but, but some of us have heroes from sports. Uh, some of us may have heroes that were actors or singers or maybe heroes that were politicians. Anybody have a hero that was a politician? Or a, um, but we have heroes come from all walks of life. But what I've found is that as I get older, uh, that my heroes change. And now the people I look up, into my, to, look up to in my life are, much, are people that are significant in my life. People like maybe my grandmother, uh, Edna Wallen. My, my grandmother turned 97 this year. And uh, she has been a Christ follower, I know, for all of my life, and I don't know uh, for how long before that. She has played piano at the same church every Sunday for 33 years. And uh, I say only 33 years because uh, they moved 33 years ago. She and my grandfather moved 33 years ago, and they had to move to a different church. Uh, But she has been there pretty much every Sunday for 33 years. Uh, And my grandfather, uh, who died 25 years ago, um, as far as I know, wasn't a Christian. Uh, But even without that, uh, her influence has allowed all six of her children uh, to help lead them to have a relationship with Christ. And and I don't know how many of her, I think 19 grandchildren and 39 great-grandchildren, have been at least pointed to Jesus uh, because of my grandmother's uh, faith and neighbors and friends and who else. Uh, As I said, my grandfather died 25 years ago, and my grandmother had to put up with uh, some advances from other... uh, widowed men in the church, uh, and she would always say, I remember this, she would always say, I don't need another man in my life, I've got Jesus in my life. And that was her response. Every man that came up to her, that was kind of her thing. Well, this spring, I took um, my wife and my girls to West Virginia to visit her, and uh, we were just there, like on our way to somewhere else, and so it was kind of a quick thing. We had dinner together, and then we went to my grandmother's house, and we walked through it, and it had been uh, probably seven or eight years since I'd been through this house, and she was just showing us all of her things and things that she had accumulated over the years and what they meant to her and telling stories about the pictures in her house, and I remember I just, uh, about 10 minutes into the conversation, I just got out my phone and hit record. And I just started recording all these things my grandmother was telling me about uh, early in her marriage and how that worked and where they lived and, and, and you know, the people that were influential in her life, stuff I want to remember, you know, stuff that I want to pass on to my kids. Her great-grandchildren need to hear this stuff. See, there are people in our lives who are significant, and then there are people 
who have eternally significant lives. Let me tell you the difference. Um, how many of you know who won the best uh, actor Oscar in 1997? Anybody? How many of you can name the person who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry last year or this year, <laughs> you know, a month ago? Uh, not many of us, right? But, but, but then there are people who have eternal significance, all right? Uh, so, like, name one teacher who influenced the direction of your life. You know, name one person who had a significant spiritual influence on your life. Name, name that one friend who you know, uh, if you called them in the middle of the night tonight, uh, would be there for you. you know, these are people that have eternally significant lives, right? They're eternally significant to us. They're lives that count. It's a life that matters. Here's the difference. I believe, and I know many of you do too, that the only thing on this earth that's eternal is people. Like We are the only things on earth now that will outlive the earth. I believe that, and I know many of you do. And so the people that have eternally significant lives are the people that have an impact on other people, right? And don't we all want a life like that? I mean, one that is eternally significant. If you have kids, you know, don't you want a marriage, either now or someday? Don't you want a marriage that your kids can look up to? You know, don't you want to serve as an example for other people in your faith? If you're a Christian, don't you want to help Lead people to Jesus, point people to Jesus, and to watch God do things in your life that you never imagined he could do. Now, think about it. If people are the only thing that are eternal, then 100 years from now, the only thing that matters is a person's relationship with God. Where you worked won't matter. Where you lived won't matter. How much money you made, what you drove, none of those things will matter. But your relationship with God, 100 years from now, 500 years from now, is the only thing that matters. You know, we're in this series called The Story, and we've gone through almost the entire story of the Bible. We are on chapter 30 out of 31, and so the story ends next week. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about the end of time. And, uh, but last week, we talked about a guy named Saul, who we know better as the Apostle Paul. And, and Paul is a guy that lived an eternally significant life. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember that Saul experienced a dramatic conversion uh, on the road to Damascus. He was headed to Damascus. Uh, to uh, drive out Christians. He was going to have Christian, to persecute Christians, maybe even to have them killed. And he was met on the road in person by Jesus. Now, the only problem with this was that Jesus was already dead. Uh, but Paul saw him. And because of that, he had this incredible conversion. And then empowered by the Holy Spirit, Paul set out throughout the world. He became one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever known and church planners the world has ever known. In fact, we have 13 of Paul's letters that he wrote recorded as part of our New Testament today. And so this guy who was uh, one of the biggest persecutors of Christians, who hated Christians, now became uh, one of our biggest influencers And there's one verse I think that best summarizes Paul's life and ministry. It's the very last verse in the book of Acts. It's Acts 28, 31. You don't have to turn there. It's right here on the side screens. It says this. He, talking about Paul, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Man, when I think about my life, if I get to the end, that's that's what I want people to say about me. And you know, even later in his life, when Paul was... Uh, pretty much done with ministry. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, content to sit on a rocking chair and retire. You know, he wasn't uh, good to just get out the sticks and play golf. You know, at the end of Paul's life, as he was sitting in prison and awaiting execution in Rome, uh, Paul was thinking and praying and writing and acting according to God's will for his life. 
And before he was executed, uh, after Paul had written all these letters to the churches, Paul wrote several letters to friends. And these are recorded in the end of the Old Testament now, uh, what we now see at the very end of the Old Testament. And that's where we're going to study uh, today. So if you have your Bible, uh, you can get them out and turn them to 2 Timothy. If you get to a book that starts with a T, you're really close. And so if you're at First uh, or Second Thessalonians, make a right turn. Uh, if you get all the way to Titus, you've gone a little too far, but we're going to start in Second Timothy. Now, at the end of his life, what we see is Paul wrestles with this question. Who's going to be the guy that carries on my ministry? You know, who's the right person to carry this on? Who, who's going to keep proclaiming the gospel after I'm gone? Uh, who's going to help, find, help people find their way back to God? That's what Paul's asking in some of these letters. And this is where Timothy comes in. Uh, Timothy was a young man, younger than Paul anyway, probably a dozen or so years younger than Paul, which means at the time 2 Timothy was written, he was likely in his mid to late 40s or maybe 50 years old. Now, he had grown up a Jewish boy and was likely led to Christ by Paul. Uh, and so he joined Paul for some of his missionary journeys. If you were here last week, you remember we said that Paul took three missionary journeys through his life, at least three that we know of, and Timothy joined him on a couple of these. That he was also, uh, so he preached in places like Macedonia and Greece uh, alongside Paul. He was also with Paul uh, the first time he was in prison in Rome. So Timothy has lived life with Paul. I guess the point is that Timothy spent a lot of time with Paul. He, he knew him. He understood him. They were good friends. And, and, and that's important because here's the thing. If you look for a mentor or if you look for someone to mentor, if you look for an apprentice, um, it's okay to pick somebody you like. And that's what Paul did with Timothy. It's, we have a saying, um, when we, we get together in leadership circles here at Genesis and we talk about apprenticing or discipleship. We have this saying, and it goes like this. It's not a sin to pick a friend. All right? It's okay to pick somebody you like to invest in because that relationship is so important. And so that's what we see in Paul and Timothy. They are um, teacher and student, uh, mentor and mentee, if that's a word, uh, uh, teacher and apprentice maybe, they are, but they're also friends. And that's so important. And I'm confident that Timothy would say that Paul had a life of eternal significance. Now, you and I can say that too, but we've got 2,000 years of hindsight to help us with that. But, but Timothy saw that, and Paul thought a lot of Timothy too. And the book of 2 Timothy is, as far as we know, the last communication that Paul ever had uh, with his young apprentice, Timothy. And so it's a big deal. And, and I have to think that Timothy would have known when he received this letter that it was the last time or one of the last time, it could be the last time, that he would ever hear from Paul, uh, from his friend. And so near the end of his letter, and 2 Timothy 4 is where we're going to start, 2 Timothy 4, uh, verse 6 through 8. We're going to spend most of our time in this letter today. Uh, Paul writes this, of 2 Timothy 4, 6, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now think about how the weight of these words would have hit Timothy. You know, his, his friend, his mentor, his kind of spiritual father is nearing the end of his life. He's telling him that, right? Uh, and uh, he's, he's probably taking notes. He's probably paying close attention. You know, if they had iPhones back then, he'd probably be out like I was with my grandmother recording that conversation. Why? Because Paul lived a life of eternal significance. And, and most likely, Timothy wanted that too. You know what? I, I want it too. I think many of us want that. You want to live a life that really counts for something, right? You want to live a life where people are going to miss you when you're gone. 
And not just they miss your beautiful smile, <laughs> but they're going to miss the impact that you have. They're going to miss the ministry they did, you did. You're going to miss your, your contribution to humanity. I think that's what most of us want. You want to live a life that when you get to the end, you have no regrets. And so here's the good news. Uh, for us, you and I, we get the benefit of learning from a guy like Paul uh, who lived a life like that. We get the benefit of learning from his wisdom. And because these letters that he wrote to his friends are recorded for us for all time uh, in the Holy Scriptures, in the Bible, uh, they've been captured for us, we can learn from them. And so that's what I want to do today. You know, for, for those of us who want to live a life of eternal significance, um, let's do that. Let's take Paul's words to heart. And so at the end of his life, uh, let's look and see what Paul has to say and try to take something away from his years in ministry. And so what I want to do is let's look at three lessons that I think Paul is teaching us uh, through the, the book of 2 Timothy and, and a couple other letters that he wrote late in his life, uh, things that he wanted to pass on to his young protege. And let's see how they apply to our lives. And these are in your notes if you want to follow along. Uh, so number one is this. The first one is this. Paul was driven by the gospel. Paul was driven by the gospel. We see this in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. He says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power. We, we talked about that last week. Do you remember? The spirit, God didn't give us a spirit of fear, or he doesn't give us a spirit that makes us timid. He gives us a spirit that gives us power, love, and self-discipline. He says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. Paul was not afraid. He was not ashamed of the gospel and of how Jesus was working in his life. In fact, you see it woven throughout almost everything that Paul writes. That the good news of what Jesus did for mankind, yes, but also for what Jesus did in his life. Like Paul never lost the wonder of what God was doing for him. Like it never became old to him. He couldn't stop talking about it. In fact, he even wrote in his first letter to Timothy a few years before, he wrote this. He said, 1 Timothy 1, he said, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Man, this is so good. And Paul, Paul lays out his whole testimony right there in that verse. He says, this is what I was like before. This is where Jesus met me. And this is what happened after. It's so good. Paul says, Jesus came to save sinners, and I was the worst. But he saved me anyway. He redeemed my life. He says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Now, you may not say that about yourself, but what would you say? You know, if you know Jesus, what were you once? Would you say, I, I was once an addict? Or, I was once without purpose. Or I was once a gossiper. You know, let me ask you. Is the gospel driving you? It drove Paul. Is it driving you? If you're a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter what your story is. The story of how Jesus Christ works in your life should always be the centerpiece of your story. 
What's the gospel of Jesus? Well, it's the story. It's what we've been talking about for the last 30 weeks. It's how God created the earth, and at the beginning, uh, everything was perfect. He said it was good, and he made man, and he made woman, and their relationship was perfect. But then sin entered the picture. Man let sin into the picture, and things fell apart, and our relationship with God suffered because of that. But God wasn't happy that our relationship suffered. So he set in plan, in motion this plan to, to help us find our way back to him. And so he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth and live a life of perfect obedience. You know, it's a life that you and I couldn't live. It, and then he died a death, a horrible death on a cross, a death that you and I deserved. But Jesus did that for us so that we could be reconciled with God. And for all of us who believe in Jesus, we have this promise of eternal life. If we believe in the work that Jesus did on the cross, uh, we were on our way to death, but we were brought back to life. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's not just about what God did for the world or what God did for people in general, but it's about, it's about what he's done for you and me. You know, it's about our story. Paul weaves his personal story throughout almost every letter he writes. He weaves it in with the gospel. It truly drives him. In fact, it drove him all over the world to plant churches and and to reach lost people and proclaim the good news. He never lost the wonder of what Jesus did in his life. Now, you may say, my story's not like Paul's. Well, not many of ours are. You may think my story's boring. You know, and the truth of it is that many of us who have you know, the boring stories, uh, look to these dramatic conversions and go, man, I wish my story was more like that. But the truth is, if your story is, quote, boring, it's still your story. And you know what? If it's your story and you think your story is boring, the chances that a lot more people can relate to your story than some of these more dramatic conversions. And if you think your story is boring, you still have to remember what has Jesus done in your life? You know, so in my life, my wife and I, we were happily married before I found Jesus, you know, but I still knew something was missing. Like there was a lot of stuff in my life that I wasn't proud of and, and all this work I was doing and all these things. I felt like there had to be some purpose for some of the stuff that I experienced and some of the things that we were going through. We had this neighbor uh, named Rick and he invited my wife over to a Bible study at their house. It was kind of funny. He said, um, hey, we're doing a Bible study at our house. Would you like to come? And she said, yeah, who else is going to be there? And he said, well, right now it's you. And so um, she went, and clearly God had called her to that, and uh, he led her to Christ through that Bible study. And I, I wasn't there yet. I mean, I was in this place where I had kind of gotten on board with, yeah, there's probably a God, but I think what he did was just like create everything, and he set the world in motion, and he said, all right, guys, good luck. And he didn't really care what went on after that, and that's kind of where I was. And, and, and so then I decided, but where am I going to learn? Where am I going to find out about this? I've got to confirm if what I think is true or not. And so I went, I picked up this book, uh, this book that I had um, heard about as a kid, and I had tried to read a couple times uh, when I was going to church as a kid, but had never really gotten through. And I had a friend that said, you know what, here's your problem. Don't start with Genesis, okay, because it gets too hard. It gets, uh, and you won't understand it. He said, start with the Gospels. And so I said, okay, what are the Gospels, you know? And he said, well, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all, they're each a story of the life of Jesus. Start with one of those. And he told me a little bit about them. And I was an engineer, and, um, and so I was very logical. And so I, so I started with Luke. Uh, Luke was a doctor. He wrote like a scientist. Uh, he investigated facts and he wrote it down. And so I'm like, okay, that's me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at Luke. And as I started to read Luke and I started to go to church with my wife, I started to realize that there's a God who not just created us, but, but who loves me. Like this God that loves me so much that he sent his son to die in my place and to, to pay the price for me. And, 
And he created me with a purpose, and he bought me with a price. And that's what I was learning as I was reading this book. And, and so I started to trust God with like this much of my life. And I found out he was faithful. So I trusted him with this much. And he was faithful again. And man, it took a long time until I could trust him with everything. Maybe I'm still not there. But I trust him with my life. And I trust him with my family. I trust him with my money. That's a big leap. And a couple of years ago, I took the step of trusting him with my livelihood. I stepped out of a nice, great job with a great company and a, a secure income and, and came to work in ministry. But it didn't come overnight for me. And, and, but one by one, God started to peel away the things that didn't make sense in my life and to, to change the things that I wasn't proud of and to make me into a new creation. And I've got to tell you today, I've spent more of my life, even today, as I stand here, more of my life has been spent apart from God than in a relationship with him. But I'm here to tell you without any hesitation that this way is better. It is, it's just better. What about you? I mean, if you're a Christian, have you lost the wonder of what Jesus did for you? You know, do the people around you know and know your story and what God has done for you and how he's changed your life? Now, maybe they know you go to church. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your one-on-one, like mano e mano relationship with Jesus. Do they know about that? Do they know about your living, breathing relationship with God? I mean, every one of us who claims to be a follower of Christ should be ready and willing to tell the story of the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. You know, the Apostle Paul was driven by the gospel. It's the only thing that he could use to make sense of his life. It was such a dramatic turnaround. You and I should be driven by the gospel too. It should be featured prominently in our lives. It should motivate us and let it overflow into all of your conversations and into your relationships. You know, when life is difficult and you're feeling beat down by life, the gospel of Jesus and remembering what Christ did for you can help pick you up. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is one ingredient in an eternally significant life. But another one is relationships with other people. You know, we're put on this planet. We're put around people for a reason. We're supposed to be in relationship with them. John 15, 15, Jesus says this. He's telling his disciples, he says, everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You know, Jesus was intentional about being in relationships with these people. And Paul followed that model of Jesus. Uh, He was obedient to the great commission of making disciples who make disciples. You know, this leads to the second lesson we learned from Paul. And it's this, number two, Paul spiritually invested in other people. In 2 Timothy 1, or 2 Timothy 2, I'm sorry, he says this, he writes, you then, my son, writing to Timothy again, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, and the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Look at this verse. Paul's talking about four generations of of people, of, of teachers, of leaders here. He says, Paul is saying, Timothy, the things that you heard me preach, Timothy, is to uh, uh, entrust to reliable people who will then be qualified to teach others. Four generations of people. We call it, if you've been around, you've probably heard this verse. If you've ever been in our leadership circles, if you've uh, been in our Leader's Edge environment uh, for our ministry leaders or connection group leaders on Tuesday nights, uh, you've heard us talk about this as the 2-2-2 principle. And we call it that because it's from 2 Timothy 2-2. It's not anything fancy, but it is. It's about investing in people who will invest in people who will invest in people. And by doing that, Paul is able to multiply his influence here because he's only one man, but he can multiply his influence exponentially. Well, what effect can that have? I wonder how many of you have ever done any genealogy research. Anybody ever done that with, uh, through a relative or Ancestry.com? Not very many of you, uh, a few of you. 
Um, well, you probably know what a family tree looks like, right? Even if you've not done uh, that. Well, have you ever stopped to consider what your spiritual family tree might look like? I mean, you know, in a family tree, typically you'll have your ancestors at the top, right? And then your descendants, you, you in the middle somewhere, and then your descendants at the bottom. Well, have you thought about, you know, in your spiritual life, what your spiritual family tree might look like? Like, like who's that person that first told you about Jesus? Like, who's that friend that invested in your life? Who's that pastor or that parent that, you know, made sure that you were on the right path, that, that helped you to get to where you are today? And then, and then below you, there should be some people that you're investing in, right, that you're helping to lead into that relationship. Who's that person that you're investing in? Are there people in your life? Who's that friend you're praying for? You know, do you talk to them about your faith? Do you listen to their questions? You know, do you know that, do they know that Jesus is the driving force in your life? I love how one pastor put this. He said that his life mission is to get to heaven and take as many people with him as possible. How cool is that and simple is that? That's his life mission. So so let me ask you, who are you investing in? Now, I know many of you may be feeling a twinge of guilt right now, and and just rest assured, that's not my intention. I've got a long way to go on this as well. All right, this is not something that I'm just prodding you to do, but as long as I'm still on earth... You know, because I want to live a life of eternal significance, I want to do whatever I can to be spiritually investing in the people that God puts in my life. At the end of my life here, I want to look up and see a great big spiritual family tree. You know, Paul was intentional about investing in people. He poured his life into people like Timothy. So let me ask you, who's your Timothy? Who are you investing in spiritually? Let me, let me help you out with this a little bit. Moms and dads. If you have little ones running around your house, uh, you've got some Timothys in your life, or Timothinas. Uh, I don't know what the female version of that is. The greatest gift that you can give them uh, is not food on their plate or a roof over their head, but it's a model for showing them how to love God. It's a relationship with Him. You know, you can do that in a way that nobody else can. You can do it in a way that Danielle can't, uh, that I can't. Um, that our student ministry can't because you have that influence with them. You may not think you have influence, but you have influence. If you serve in a ministry like Gen Kids or a student ministry, uh, you've got opportunities to invest in the next generation. You know, in the same way, if you work with a ministry like Crew or like Young Life, uh, you've got a bunch of Timothys and Timothinas, a bunch of kids, a bunch of people that can be your protégés. You're surrounded with people that you can invest in. If you lead a connection group at Genesis... Uh, you've got people in your connection group that are relying on you. They can be your Timothys. You know, and, and I'm not talking about just in the group setting every couple of weeks. I'm talking about you know, pick one or two and invest in them outside of that environment. You know, take them out to lunch. Take them out to dinner. Um, start talking to them about things that you've read or things that you've seen. Remember, it's not a sin to pick a friend, right? So pick somebody you like. It's okay. If you've got a friend or a neighbor who's struggling, who has questions, who's going through it. Let me tell you, if you're a Christian and people know about it, People are eventually going to come to you with questions, I guarantee it. And when people have hard times, they're going to seek out somebody that seems to have it together spiritually, even if you don't have it all together. But you're going to have a chance to have influence. It's a great opportunity for you to invest in them. Now, you may say, now, Steve, you don't know my neighbor. I mean, you don't understand how far from God he is. I just want to say, "Uh uh-uh, bro. (laughs) Um, If he lives next door to you, he's not far from God. Because remember last week we said the Holy Spirit lives where? inside you, right? Inside us. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. And who's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. So you may think your neighbor's far from God. 
But if you're a Christian and you live next door to them, they're not far from God. It's part of your job. I know there's, in most of us, there's something that says, you know what, I'm just not qualified. I just don't know enough. I'm not ready. I, I don't feel like I can answer all their questions. And you know what, that's okay. In fact, I feel that way too. But investing in people is not about knowing the answers to all their questions. In fact, sometimes that's a turnoff to people. People who have a lot of questions, if you seem to have a ready answer for everybody, that's a big turnoff. You know, when Paul was writing one of his letters one time and he kind of stopped right in the middle of it and he said, hey, not that I've already obtained all this. In other words, he said, you know what? I don't have this all figured out either. You and I, we're not done learning until we get to glory, all right? We all have learning that we can continue to do, but investing in others the way that Paul's talking about doesn't have anything to do with having it all figured out. It's about speaking into someone's life and saying, hey, I haven't arrived either, but let's go follow Jesus together. And let's learn about this together. I see this going all on all over Genesis Church right now. Um, we've got a connection group full of young married people that I know many of you or some of you are involved in, and, uh, and some single people. And they have been very intentional about inviting older married couples into this group uh, to talk about their marriage. And they will, um, every couple months or once a quarter, they will split up into two groups, men and, and women, and they'll take a husband and they'll take a wife, and they'll just ask them questions. Hey, what was it like? you know, when you were first married, what kind of things, what's the secret to your success? You know, what's the, what things do you wish you'd done differently? And they'll just start asking them these questions and they're, 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 they've taken the initiative to try, they want to make their marriages better or their future marriages better. So they'll break up and they'll ask these questions. Now, I see some young men at this campus that are passionate about investing in other young men. And so there was not a men's group that was meeting for them. So some of these guys just got together and said, hey, uh, Tuesday night, Chick-fil-A, meet me there. Come on, we're going to talk about this. We're going to do this together, you and me. And uh, there's, a, there's a group of guys now that's meeting on Tuesday nights at Chick-fil-A, just investing in one another, sharpening one another. Uh, I know a group of guys around here who found out that they're all passionate about riding motorcycles. And that's kind of where it started. They were all bikers. And so they said, hey, let's go ride motorcycles together. And then they started taking some longer trips together. And now I see them out to lunch sometimes together after the service. And, and they're investing in one another. They've got a common interest. And that just started them investing in one another. You know, but d- let's don't make this too complicated. I mean, what if after the service today, what if you sought out somebody that you've been talking to, or you've been thinking about, and just said, hey, you know what? I just read this book. Uh, why don't you and I read this together? And we'll Take a couple weeks and we'll read it and we'll meet together and we'll have breakfast or we'll have lunch and we'll talk about it. Let's just do this, me and you. Let's, let's see what it means for us to follow Jesus together. And I just want to say this. I believe that a church with these kind of intentional relationships is what God is calling us to do. I, I believe it's what he has in store for us. You know, it's what Paul had in mind for Timothy. And he tells us, he said, if you want to have a life of eternal significance, you need to invest in other people. Uh, Number three is this, and I'm sorry, I know I'm running a little long, but we're almost done, I promise. Uh, Number three, Paul endured difficult times. You know, we talked last week about uh, how Paul said that he was beaten and stoned and whipped and deserted and shipwrecked and imprisoned, and Timothy also experienced some of this uh, with Paul. And in 2 Timothy 3, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, uh, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. He says, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And he says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How's that make you feel? Is that good? Paul tells Timothy to persevere through trouble, I mean, to follow his example of endurance. And he says, hey, everybody that lives this life, everybody that endeavors to follow Jesus is going to be 
persecuted. And that may not be helpful to you right now, but it probably will be in the future because each and every one of us, if we're a follower of Jesus, we're going to endure trials. You know, Jesus told us one time, he said, he said uh, in this world, you will have trouble. But he said, but take heart for I have overcome the world. You know, you're going to find yourself at some point in the middle of a trial and you're going to have to remember, hey, it just comes with the territory. You know, so if you're at work right now and you're uh, enduring some awkward situations, uh, you've been asked to maybe violate your principles for a big client or a big project. Mm-mm, no, you've got to endure. You know, if you're uh, in a dating relationship and maybe you're being asked to violate some boundaries that you set in place, don't do it. You've got to keep enduring. You know, if you're being ridiculed on your street or by your friends because of your faith in God, you've got to keep enduring. You've got to keep enduring. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. He said, but I have overcome the world. And I want you to see something here. Paul emphasizes something that's so important for us. It's a key to our enduring. It's one of the primary ways that we get our strength to endure difficult times. In 2 Timothy 3.14, he says, but as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy, you, from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says, hey, don't forget what you were taught. He says, and most importantly, don't forget where you were taught it from. It's the Word of God. It's one of the primary ways we get the strength to endure difficult times. The Holy Scripture, the Holy Scripture, it's the Bible. And then he goes on in verse 16, he says, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He says, Scripture is useful, which to me means if Scripture is useful, that the Christian life without Scripture is useless. The Bible equips you and me for every good work that God has set up. And Scripture is so important to Paul that he wanted to pass this along to Timothy. He depended on the Word of God. So let me ask you, do you depend on the Word of God? You know, do you read your Bible? And not just read it, but do you like absorb it? Do you depend on it? You know, If you're going to be equipped to do the work that God set up for you, if you're going to live an eternally significant life, uh, the scripture is going to be really important. I, I told you a few minutes ago that when I was investigating who God really was, that this was the first book I picked up, the, the Holy Bible. Well, why would I pick this one? Of all the books that I could pick, why would I pick the Bible? Well, it may interest you to know that of the entire world's population, about 7 billion, uh, about 4 billion people think that this book somehow holds the truth about God in it. Now, I'm talking about not just Christians, but Jews and Muslims both think this is a significant book uh, in, as far as what it says about God. And now, a lot of people will put the Bible on a, on a, on a, a plane with other religious texts, but I'm telling you that 4 billion people in the world, over half the world's population, believe that this is somehow related to God. And, and you may think it's not trustworthy, or it's not authentic, or that the church has changed it over the years to kind of uh, suit its needs to adapt it. This may interest you. I did some research, and um, here's what I found out. Here's what I, I know about the Bible. Uh, I did this several years ago for a youth group that I was working with, but it's still good. Um, that the, the Bible was originally, or the New Testament was originally written in Greek, um, and uh, it was written and it was distributed throughout the world, and uh, there were many, many, everybody, every copy was copied by hand. Uh, in manuscript. And so uh, then soon, because the Roman Empire had such a big influence, it was translated into Latin and then copied even more widely. Did you know that today, of all those original hand manuscripts, there are still over 30,000 
hand manuscripts that still exist of the original scriptures, 30,000 handwritten copies of the Bible that we have access to today in Greek and Latin. There's about 5,000 Greek copies and about 25,000 Latin copies that still exist today. No other book even comes close. That Homer's the Iliad is the next closest, and it has 643 copies. We've got over 30,000 of the Bible. And you know what? Each one of those handwritten copies says identically or substantially the same thing, all 30,000 of them. In fact, if you read uh, this version of the Bible, which is the one we give away every week, um, you'll see a footnote every once in a while, and it'll say, some manuscripts say this. It'll call out every difference in those manuscripts. And I think that's incredible that there are 30,000 of these that still exist. It shows that it hasn't been changed over time. The word is still the word. It's been translated into English and every other language on the planet, but um, it's not been changed. And the scriptures are trustworthy. And I've made up my business to know them and to understand them for more than six years ago now. About six years ago, a little over six years ago, some people in my connection group challenged me to read the entire Bible. I'd never read the whole thing all the way through. And uh, six years ago, I started, and I've never stopped. I've just been reading and reading and reading. And every day, um, I, I read Scripture. In fact, I can count on two hands the number of days I've missed since then, six years ago. Uh, but I'll tell you, there are definitely seasons and uh, in weeks where I was reading it just out of obligation. Like I wasn't reading it because I was depending on it. I wasn't reading it because I was absorbing it. I was reading it because, oh, well, it's bedtime. I guess I better read my Bible tonight. And that's not what I want. I don't want that for me, and I don't want that for you. I want to depend on Scripture. I want to devour the Scripture like Isaiah said at one time. You know, I, I want to be passionate about it. I want to love. I want to love God's Word. I want to love the Scripture, and I want that for you too. Do you do that? Do you depend on Scripture? Does your day revolve around it? You know, next week we'll finish the story, and uh, many of you have been reading right along with us every chapter, every week, uh, right up to that time, but next week you're going to be done, and then what are you going to do? Well, my hope is that you'll trade that book for this book, and that you'll just keep reading and keep going back at it, and go keep going over and over again and reading and just breathing in God's Holy Scripture. And what are the keys to an eternally significant life? One, let the gospel drive you. Two, spiritually invest in others. And three, depend on the word of God. Let it be your source for light and hope and wisdom and strength to endure hard times. Let's look one more time at how Paul closes his last letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, this is the, uh, one of the early verses we looked at. It says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And don't you want to get to the end of your life and Say, I've fought the good fight, and that I've finished the race, the right race. <laughs> um, back in the spring, I had the chance to uh, do something kind of cool I'd never done before. I'm a runner. Um, I had the chance to drive the lead car in the Carmel Marathon. It just kind of happened because of some relationships our church has developed with some of the organizers of the marathon. I had the chance to pray before the race, and then I got to drive the lead car. And so my job was to stay in front of the front marathon runners and show them where to go. And so it's a big responsibility. I mean, it's a big race. People train really hard for this. And so I trained as for the, to be the driver. I, um, I, I watched, I looked at the map, I studied it, I memorized it, I drove the course a few times in advance, and wouldn't you know it, uh, the, the night before the Carmel Marathon, there was a huge rainstorm. You may remember back in April, we got about three inches of rain in one night. And uh, some of the trails that they were going to use for the race flooded. And they had to reroute the race at the last minute, the marathon. And uh, so I got there early in the morning, about 5.30 in the morning, uh, to where the race was starting. And the guy who was organizing the whole thing said, okay, I've got a new map for you. 
here's how the race is going to go now. We're going to miss these trails. We're going to go on these roads instead. So when you get here, you were supposed to go straight. You're going to go left. You're going to go through this neighborhood. You're going to make a right. He, he texted me the directions. He marked up a map for me. He made sure I had everything. Well, when I got to the point on the course where I was supposed to turn right, the sign said, go straight. And I went, oh no, what do I do now? Because it said, the sign said straight, but it said half marathon. The half marathon wasn't supposed to be out there. My map said right. And, and the runners were 50 feet behind me. They were then 20 feet behind me. And then they passed me as I was sitting there trying to make the decision. And I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to do what I was told and not what I see. I'm going to pay, not pay attention to what I see. I'm going to turn right. And so the runners ran past me and started to go straight. And I said, no, no, right, right, right. And so they turned right. And I got back in front of them and I went, man, I hope I was right. <laughs> I sure hope that I'm taking them on the right path. And I, I, I get back, they had to go through these trails and I got back in front of them and I thought, oh man, what if I've got them on the wrong course? And the whole way, the whole rest of the way I'm driving, looking in the back mirror, I'm saying, I'm sorry guys, if I got you on the wrong course, I'm sorry. I don't want to have you running the wrong race. And so I get back to the finish line and I take my map in and I plop it down in front of the organizer. I said, okay, here's what you said to do. Here's what the sign said. Here's what I did. And he looked at it and he goes, no, you, you took them the right way. I was like, I'm so glad. But then I got to tell you for a couple weeks after that, I had these nightmares that I had taken the guys on the wrong <laughs> track and that, that they were coming to my house to get me because I, <laughs> you don't want to get to the end of your life and find out you've been running the wrong race. When you get to the end of life, you want, you want to see that you've had a life that was eternally significant. You know, a life where you've invested in other people, a life where you've depended on the word of God and a life where the gospel was driving you. That's what makes a life eternally significant. Would you pray with me? Father God, I'm so thankful for your message and for the words of wisdom you give us through the life of somebody like Paul who's lived an eternally significant life and that we can learn from that. God, I thank you for how much he, he looked to you for wisdom and for guidance and for, for strength and power. And God, I want each and every one of us to do that too. I just pray that in my life, Lord, that, that I would be somebody who's driven by your gospel, by the good news of what you've done for me, that I wouldn't lose the wonder of what that was. And Lord, I pray that for our church that even if we feel like we have a boring story that we can look at it and say, no, you know what? This is what Jesus has done in my life. It's amazing. And God, I pray for the people here who don't know you, who don't have that relationship and that you desperately want to change their life and put them on a new path and have them run the right race. God, I pray for right now for their hearts that as we go into this time of worship, that those of us who, who believe this and know this and are pursuing you will lift you up and those of us who are seeking will, God, just look to you and say, God, what do you want me to do with this? God, thanks for being here. Thanks for being present. Thanks for having us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.